And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. to the Total Soccer Show that really could go off the rails at any moment. <laughs> Unlike any other Total Soccer Show episode, this one is one where I'm not sure I'm the best to be hosting because emotion. But we're going to see how it goes. Uh, we're recording this in the wake of the USA's nil-nil draw with Saudi Arabia and on the heels of their even more disappointing loss to Japan. But let's not go completely sad and negative right away. Let's throw to somebody who is pretty happy right now, and I'm assuming at least mostly sober. It's Graham Group A Ruffin. Hello, Graham. Hello, Taylor. Yes, I'm going to have to tone down my energy uh-huh. here because after watching Scotland get the point they needed against the odds to win a promotion to League A, England and League B, League B, League B, B, B mm-hmm. by the way, Ryan, in case you hadn't noticed that, <laughs> um, and also to make it into pot two and make the Euros playoffs. Yes, it's been a good night for me personally. Now I have to talk about this mess of a window for the USMNT and I watched two games tonight simultaneously there was some overlap and both finished nil-nil and Taylor remember you mentioned that bit in Made in Wrexham where Rob McElhenney is, is saying he's explaining to someone I can't remember if it's Ryan Reynolds yeah. or his, his son or whatever he's explaining that some draws are wins and some draws are defeats I think yes. tonight encapsulates that perfectly I didn't see a goal oh tonight God. in two games but Scotland obviously very happy USMNT, not so much. I forgot about that. You're right. Yes, some draws seem like wins. Some draws feel like losses. This one feels like a loss. And that is how I think US fans are feeling. Graham, I'm glad that you're not feeling that way. Though I am now wondering if you're to blame for this a little bit, that like once we brought you into the fold, is it the case that Graham can only have one thing that he's happy about? And if Scotland are doing well, the United States is not. Graham, defend yourself. Yeah, this is the gravitational pull that we we talked about. Was it last week we spoke about this? It's like magnets. Yep. The US and Scotland cannot both succeed at the same time. We are on opposite ends. Sorry about that. All right. Well, uh, if we are at opposite ends and Graham is happy, then somebody who's maybe at the opposite end is Joe... I'm still only like 30% happy, Lowry, because Joe is never truly sad, but I'm guessing after tonight's game, after our BR conversation, uh, I don't think either of us is feeling particularly optimistic about the U.S. men's national team, Joe. Yeah, so the one thing I pointed to that gave me joy on the BR show was that England was relegated in the Nations League, and we've sort of already talked about that. So I'll add one other thing that gives me a little bit of joy. This is a Twitter exchange from Ben Wright and Jeff Reuter. And and Ben Wright sort of is wondering, poetically almost, you know, does scoring matter after this window? Can you advance from a group with three nil-nil draws? And Jeff Reuter quote tweets it and says, yes, you can. It's actually happened before as well. The U.S. men's national team could just go out there, not score a single goal in the World Cup group stage, and still finish Mm -hmm. second on three points. Taylor, what are we complaining about? Life is good. There's no asteroids coming for Earth yet, although NASA is getting ready for it, as we talked about earlier. I I guess (laughs) things could be worse, you know? 
Uh, Graham, uh, if you're wondering what that's about, that was genuinely my introduction to the live show on the BR app, was that I saw that that story of NASA crashed uh, a satellite <laughs> into an asteroid to test. I forget what they were testing, but a lot of the response was, <laughs> is that their way of saying an asteroid is coming and they're testing the efficiency of slamming satellites into it? My takeaway being, at least we don't know there's an asteroid coming for Earth right now, so things could yeah. always be worse. That's the about how I'm feeling. The true sign of an asteroid, though, is when they train up a team of oil drillers to become astronauts rather <laughs> yes. than getting the astronauts to learn oil drilling. That's the real sign of when there's an asteroid oh, coming. Oh, man. Uh, I'm going to keep it light. Graham, have you heard that bit of the commentary from the Armageddon DVD? Yes, that's oh, what I took it from. incredible. That's <laughs> <laughs> my favorite. Ben Affleck definitely drunk for that one, unlike Graham Ruffin, who's sober for this show. Uh, for people who are not feeling great about the USMNT, first of all, welcome. Neither uh, are we. We are part of that. <laughs> club. Yep. Uh, we are going to talk about this game in particular, the tactics, uh, who did well, who did not do well, but I think we're going to spend a, a larger chunk of the time looking at this camp as a whole, the big t- picture takeaways and where we go from here, including, I think, taking a longer look at Greg Berhalter and where things stand under his tenure. Nothing too big going to change before the World Cup, but we can at least try to get some ducks in a row. Let's start with this game, and let's start with the lineups, Joe. It felt to me, uh, Twitter, never the best gauge, uh, that there was already some consternation, some frustration with this starting 11. Uh, How were you feeling, aside from that, when you saw who would be uh, starting in this game for the U.S.? It was an okay, this is fine kind of lineup mm-hmm. for me. Not a lineup that I was particularly excited about in a general sense, but there were some some good things about it, right? Getting Polisic and Reyna, uh, evidently for 30 minutes, but getting them starting on, on both wings was something I was excited about. Uh, seeing Serginho Dest at left back is always an interesting experiment, if not a super productive one. And then there are some issues with this lineup. I had this, I wrote this stuff down before the game. I have concerns about the U.S.'s progressing. I, I didn't take notes in complete sentences, apparently. I have concerns about the U.S. progressing the ball slash creating chances with this back line in midfield. So seeing Kellen Acosta in midfield was not something that I was particularly excited about. Seeing Aaron Long in the back line, again, after how uh, uh, poor he was against Japan, to, to choose a nice word there, was unfortunate. And then seeing Ricardo Pepe in the lineup, when number nines in this U.S. system already have trouble getting involved, seeing Pepe over Sargent d- just doesn't make sense to me. So all of those things are frustrating. I'm going to run through the lineup in its entirety. It was Matt Turner in goal, Serginho Dest as the left back, DeAndre Yedlin as the right back, Aaron Long and Walker Zimmerman in the middle of that four-man back line. Tyler Adams as the number six, Kellen Acosta to his right, and Weston McKenney to his left, Ricardo Pepe as the number nine, Gio Reyna to his right, and then Christian Pulisic to his left. Now, to be clear, this was still a lineup that should have gotten or, or should have been good enough to get a result against Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. But that, I mean, I guess they got a result. They didn't get a, a qualifying yeah. or satisfying result out of this game. And for me, that kind of started with some of the weird idiosyncrasies and decisions that I simply would not have made with the starting eleven. Graham, we're already going to take it to the theoretical realm for a second. If the United States had managed maybe one goal in the 70th minute, would you feel any better about this result, given that they had found a way to score, they had gotten a result theoretically, or would you still have a decent amount of those same concerns as you have right now? Um, I would feel a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I think just looking at the the the, the kind of binary 
terms of these two games, the fact that the US haven't scored over 180 minutes is not ideal and haven't really looked oh, like is it scoring. Not? Is that so not if good? Okay. <laughs> if that, that goal down. comes from a good attacking sequence, then yeah. you go, okay, there's there's something there. I did say before this window that results weren't the most important thing and I would look at the, the performances and actually I stand by that. I know the results here have been poor, but it's actually the performances that have been most concerning. So even if the US win this game and, and the rest of that match goes as it did in reality, I would still have a lot of the same questions about this performance. Yeah. So at the end of the game, there's a lot of frustration for me. There's a feeling that there wasn't a ton of intensity that a lot of players, I genuinely felt like sort of saw this as a thing to get past to then be ready for the World Cup. And I think some players already have their their seat number booked on that flight to Qatar. And I'm not sure that has been the best thing for the intensity and the overall squad performance. But Joe, also in the first 10 to 15 minutes, the opening 20 seconds in which Saudi Arabia get a decent shooting chance uh, away aside, I saw some things from the United States I'm not sure we've seen as much of uh, in recent history, especially those sort of runs from deep with balls over the top that yeah. seem to be play, playing on Saudi Arabia being like sort of high but also narrow. I saw some things from the U.S. that did make me think like, oh, okay, we're responding from what we saw against Japan. There is more intensity. There are new plans for a different opponent. And I feel like that went away quickly. But early on, did you see some things in this performance that you thought were interesting or were working? I did. I appreciate it, Taylor, to the point you're getting at there, how the U.S. actively looked for space and behind in a way they just did not against Japan. Now, to be clear... Saudi Arabia, first of all, is a much worse team than Japan. That was evident for anybody who watched this game. They were missing key players as well, just as Japan was. But there's a massive gulf in quality between Japan and Saudi Arabia, despite where they finished in, in Asian World Cup qualifying. But, I mean, you watched this game, and the U.S. was targeting space and behind. So Japan pressed the U.S. high up the field. Saudi Arabia did that in the opening stages of this game, and, and they were sort of on the front foot early. And then they settled back into, like, this recklessly high line for a mid block like does that does that make any sense so they weren't pressing high up the field with their forwards engaging the u.s inside their own box or really even in the final third for large parts of this game but they were sitting in this where where you would normally draw your line of confrontation with your forwards you know a a 10 15 yards into the attacking half in, in sort of a mid block and their back line was squeezed so tight there was like 18 yards so maybe it was a little bit more than that but there was such a small distance separating saudi arabia's forward line and their back line in their defensive block and the u.s saw that They saw that very early on in this game, and Weston McKinney started making run after run in behind, and Christian Pulisic started making run after run in behind. We saw them do that to some success against Morocco and and other games back in June. We saw almost none of that against Japan. So I was encouraged by that early on, and then, Taylor, it sort of started to feel to me like the U.S. were only playing the ball in behind, and they couldn't really get the timing right. They had a couple of decent ball progressive moments in those sequences, but they couldn't nail the timing to create chances. They couldn't get in the box, and that was a theme to carry back to the Japan game, right? All told, this is from Opta. Do you guys want to guess how many touches U.S. strikers had inside the box over these two the, these two games, 180 minutes? Does anybody want to guess? Oof. Over these two games? 180-plus minutes of soccer. Uh, five five yeah Yeah, you're you're right on that's a problem right that is very clearly a problem for this u.s team it was a problem against japan the u.s almost overcorrected to the point where they were going in behind so often they get the ball in the final third there's not really clear patterns in the final i mean there are just so many issues with how the u.s attacked in this game there was some good stuff early on but it, it faded pretty quickly or at least it was not improved upon to the point where the u.s actually looked dangerous in this game I, I did like what I saw at, at the start, and I'm glad you you highlight that 
Joe, because I I I, I liked um, we spoke after the Japan game about that lack of vertical threat and looking at the lineup, I thought Pulisic was going to be the guy who provided that vertical threat, but actually. In the opening twenty minutes, it was it was Weston McKinney who was making runs beyond Pepe, which for me is a much better use of his skill set rather than rather than having him involved in the in the bulk of the build up play, especially with Saudi Arabia making the the center of the pitch so pinched as as you mentioned there, Joe. So I, I quite liked that, and I liked what I saw from Pulisic as well at, at, in the beginning of the match. He was he looked quite sharp. He was carrying the ball well, making some good runs, surging runs with the with the ball, but. There were also times when Pulisic could have done more to get himself into goal-scoring positions. And I want Pulisic getting on the end of chances. He's excellent at that. When you have him um, you know, picking up the ball from deep, driving it forward, and then spinning in and and, and finding the goal-scoring position in the middle. And, and we didn't really see that last part from him. And I wanted Pulisic to get up alongside McKinney on the left to create those overloads. And the two times that this happened in the first half, it did actually happen on occasion, the US had a shot. So first of all, from McKinney himself, and then there was that daisy cutter from Tyler Adams from, from outside the yeah. box, which is probably the closest, the two the two closest instances of, of the US actually scoring comes from that overload on the left-hand side with McKinney and Pulisic. And, I, and the weird thing was, um, Joe, you mentioned kind of those long diagonal passes and how the US, it was as if, oh, that works, right? We're just gonna, we're just gonna continue to do that. But it was, it was almost, I, I, it was confusing to me how they continued to do that, yeah. but then the overloads and the McKenney runs, they kind of disappeared a little bit as the match went on. I don't know whether that was because Saudi Arabia slightly dropped their back line a little bit. Mm. That was one of the most concerning things for me from this game was, if you were saying who, which of the two teams are not necessarily the better team, but which is the smarter team, which is the mm-hmm. team that adapted to this game better, it was Saudi Arabia because they dropped yeah. their, their back line a little bit. They also started to press a little bit more on the US when they had the yeah. ball, when they realised they weren't very good at that. And the US, while I thought they set up pretty well, just couldn't react to that. I don't know if they've got that in-game intelligence. Um, there was something Beralter said after the Japan game that one of the mistakes he made was overloading the players with instructions which which I guess is on him a little bit but it doesn't it doesn't say a great deal about the, the this group's ability to take on instruction and work out problems for themselves and that's a, that's a concern after this and, game again and and same against Japan right those are troubling themes from this entire window and it, it doesn't speak well necessarily of the players it also doesn't speak well of of Greg Baralta right who's had mm-hmm. almost 4 years now to drill in some of these concepts Taylor I brought this up to you earlier there's this idea, guys, that the very first thing that, that at least goes viral about what Greg Berhalter wants to do with the U.S. is he wants them to have the ball to disorganize the opposition defense with with the possession, right, with, with their ability on the ball. And, and this game provided a really great chance to do that, as did Japan, in different ways, right? So the U.S. got got beaten pretty badly by a team that high-pressed them. Now they come into this game against Saudi Arabia, who are sitting in a lower block, at least relative to, to Japan. And they can't use the ball successfully in either one of those games. They don't create yeah. many meaningful chances. And they can't solve problems, right? They couldn't solve the press, and they couldn't solve the block. That's that's concerning, right? I know there's a lot of injuries here, and I am sympathetic to that. This was not the best team that if everyone's healthy, the U.S. would have put out. And I'm confident that if those players were involved, the U.S. would have looked better. But they weren't, and they're not going to be available, all of them, for the World Cup. And the signs that we're seeing from the U.S. in, in terms of their ability to solve problems are not good at all right now. Yeah, I'm not breaking any new ground here, but I would say the the word that I think is 
like most clearly describes how I'm feeling is concerning. And I think this was a very concerning performance, both for the reason that Graham just mentioned. I think in Saudi Arabia, who, Joe, you said is a worse opponent than Japan, and I would agree 100%. with you on a technical level. But at the same time, I would say they were a more practical opponent than Japan. I think we saw in Saudi Arabia what they're going to do in the World Cup. They're going to frustrate. They're going to, to sit deeper and make you beat them. But they're also going to time waste. We saw the goalkeeper very much taking his time to restart. We saw a lot of fouls, a lot of kicking the ball away and little like, oh, I'm sorry, officer, I didn't know that sort of moments when they would do, when they would do things like that. And I think that really disrupted the game, made it more cynical. And I think the United States didn't really want that physicality, didn't really want to get into things in the middle of a season with the World Cup looming. And I think they backed off a little bit and lost some of that control. And that's where the manager has to make adjustments either to fire the team back up at halftime or to change the game plan and to make things more efe- efficient and effective. And I don't think Burhalter did that. I think he didn't do that from the jump. And in this game, if you don't have Anthony Robinson, and I think if they did, some of that directness makes a lot more sense. What I saw instead was Serginho Dest as the left back not getting forward as much, at least in those opening 20 minutes or so. So as Graham said, Pulisic would be wide and sometimes make those runs, but often it was Weston McKinney. And when McKinney would, usually Pulisic stayed wide. He wouldn't move central. Ricardo Pepe would sort of drift to the back post in case the ball came across to the back post, but he wasn't making that darting run to the near post. Gio Reyna stayed wide for the sort of trash ball or if something spilled through. But the rest of the midfield stood off. And so if you even if you did have those moments where McKinney would get the ball and then play it wide to Pulisic and Pulisic would go for the cross, you'd have one, maybe two players in the box. And that's where I think then I look at that starting 11 and I understand why Acosta is in there if you want to experiment with that double pivot. But that's where, to me, starting Brendan Aronson, a player that we know is going to be more involved in the attack, or starting Brendan Aronson, moving him wide and putting Gio Reyna as one of your midfielders yeah. makes some sense to try to get more attacking presence. And it just it didn't seem like a cohesive game plan. Mm-hmm. Every place that there was a strength, I felt like there was also an immediate weakness that wasn't really masked or dealt with in any way. Yeah, absolutely. Do, do, do either of you think the U.S. should need someone like Kellen Acosta against an opponent like Saudi Arabia. Like what no. what is Joe, no. maybe what you maybe you've got a tactical insight here. What is the the plan with using Acosta in that midfield alongside Tyler Adams? Because to reference what Taylor just said, for me, you want someone like Brandon Aronson who is going to back up the front line and hopefully you're going to create opportunities for your front line against a team like Saudi Arabia who play that high line, who you can exploit in the fullback areas and you want Aronson crashing the box like he like he does, I was confused as to why Acosta was in this team. What what was your read on it? My best guess as to why Berhalter did that. So it wasn't to really use the double pivot. Taylor, I know you mentioned that, but we didn't really see the U.S. play a yeah. double pivot in this game. There were some moments that looked like that as McKenney went forward. It was this, this imbalanced, purposefully imbalanced midfield. But Acosta wasn't dropping deep alongside Adams. It was Adams in a single pivot for the vast majority of this game. I think part of the reason why you could imagine Acosta being involved in a game like this is... The one thing about Acosta, and we saw this at, at times in World Cup qualifying, is that he can hit that switch, where he's comfortable on the ball, opening up his hits, hips is, and, and hitting a long diagonal. The thing is, Saudi Arabia didn't press the U.S. in a way that Acosta needed to make those switches. Walker Zimmerman could make those switches, or DeAndre yeah. Edlin from a fullback spot can make those switches. And so you end up with Acosta 
a guy whose really only value in my mind in, in possession is to make box arriving runs in the box, not doing that stuff because McKenney's doing that stuff, or to make those switches, and he also wasn't doing that stuff because other players were doing that stuff. And you end up with a midfield where McKenney's high, Acosta's deep, but he's not really a very good ball progressor, either with his passing or or with his work on the dribble. And so you would just end up with the U.S. bypassing midfield over and over again in this game because they can't play through it. They don't have Yunus Musa to, to slow him through and do the Musa maneuver through midfield. They don't have Luca De La Torre, who's a lot better at that stuff than Kellen Acosta is. And you just end up with a really disjointed attacking effort where really your back line and your midfield outside of those long hopeful balls over the top that did get increasingly hopeful as the game wore on. Outside of those passes, they just didn't really have a recipe to get into the final third and pull Saudi Arabia apart. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest concerns out of this window is that without Yunus Musa, I I just don't see how the US are going to progress the ball regularly through the centre of midfield against high calibre opponents. Because, as you mentioned, Joe Del Torre is meant to be the backup option, but he's poor against Japan. Acosta, he's a completely different skill set to, to to Musa. And if Musa comes back in, then then maybe a lot of the problems are solved. And I still feel pretty good about that MMA midfield. I think there's enough evidence even with Musa not being, I know he was at the game tonight, but not being in this camp. I, I still feel relatively good about that. But to have that pressure on a teenager, on a 19-year-old going into a, a major tournament to completely mm-hmm. fix that midfield unit, it, it's not the sign of, I've said this a couple of times, I think the good sign of, of, a, of a well-coached team is when you can take players out of, out of a side and the profile of that, of that side doesn't really change much. The US take Musa, one player, out of that midfield unit and the profile of that midfield completely fragments and I don't really know what their what their approach is. That That isn't the sign of a well-coached team for me. Let's take a quick break on that note. Let's come back and keep talking about this game as well as the camp as a whole. Back soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. We were just talking about some things we didn't love from the USA's nil-nil draw with Saudi Arabia. I especially did not love seeing Gio Reyna have to sub off, kind of subbing himself off in that he played it out of bounds and then walked off. Uh, the reports were that he felt some tightness, that he felt some discomfort, nothing pulled that we know of, no severe injury, but still just another reminder that there will be injuries and that Gio Reyna is not necessarily always the fittest of players and another one that we can't necessarily rely on to be there to make that impact. But we hope he will be because I thought he was very good when he was on the ball when we did see him in this game. I really think he can be a difference maker for this U.S. team. Graham, when Joe and I did the BR uh, live stream, we talked about some players whose stock was up uh, after this camp. 
camp as well as multiple players whose stock was down. Mm-hmm. I will not spoil it. I will just ask you first on the positive side. Are there players that you think improved their standing in whatever way after these two games? So this is the full camp, right? This isn't yep. just tonight's game. Can be either, okay. whichever you prefer, my friend. Okay, so um, I think we've got confirmation that Matt Turner is going to be the number one goalkeeper, or at least, in my opinion, that should be the case. I saw before this game, Beralta saying, what was the exact quote? That they'd lost five starters. And so yeah, me yeah. and a number of other people on Twitter were trying to count up five, and we were getting to four because we had CCV and Richards counted as one, and people were pointing out, well, Miles Robinson gets injured. But I'm like, no, you don't count CCV and Richards you count if Will you're trap. counting you count Miles Will Robinson. Trap, so obviously. <laughs> Will Trap, Trap. yeah, that was Joe's, Joe's suggestion. You, you stop it now. You know exactly what you're doing here. <laughs> um, so I'm concerned that the fifth one is Stefan, but um, Wait. I th- that would be surprising. I, I, th- I think Matt Turner's going to be the number one goalkeeper for the World Cup at this point. So his Graham, stock is up. Can we do those numbers really quickly? Because so you're saying CCV and Richards would count as like one starter. Yeah, because one one of them's going to start gotcha. in my in my opinion. Um, and so then it would be what Musa Robinson and Wea potentially. Yes, that was my four. So we were trying to work out who the fifth one was. I don't think anyone got it. It's People it's either Will Trapp or Jordan Pifak. Those are the only two options that I will accept. <laughs> That's the only thing I can fathom. The chaos option. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, Turner. Um, this is a difficult one. I, d- yeah. I don't know whether his stock is up ne- necessarily. Well, I guess it is by default. I think Aaron Long's going to the World Cup, right? It's basically this the point where we I'm, trying to, yep. I'm trying to get to. Graham, because... can I help you with it? Can I help you yeah, with it? Yeah, on you go. Okay, this is, this is, this is what I came up with uh, <laughs> on the, the, the BR live stream. It's like, imagine that you are hungry, but you have limited dinner options. You can't get delivery. You're out in the Scottish wilderness. You open your freezer, <laughs> there. and there you have a Hot Pocket. Now, is a Hot Pocket a thing that you ever are like, yes, man, I'm in the mood for a Hot Pocket? Probably no. not. As Jim Gaffigan no. said, it's cooked in a dirty microwave. It's either hot or freezing. Uh, but <laughs> it will do in a pinch. It will get the job done enough that you will no longer be hungry. Is it your first choice? No, but it is the option you have. Now, in there as well is maybe like a, a gross-looking burrito and an expired like other thing, like a lean cuisine that you can make, but it maybe expired two years ago. And none of those things are going to do the job well enough. None of them are ideal. None of them are a four-course dinner or even a delicious slice of pizza. But at least the Hot Pocket will sort of do mostly the job you need it to. That's basically how it seems with Aaron Long with a lot of those injuries we've already talked about, starting with Miles Robinson and then CCV and Chris Richards. It seems like Aaron Long is the one to slide in there and start, and then no one else in that camp seems to have really done enough to move him out of that starting spot. Yeah, and I think as soon as the starting lineup is released, is published, that is a firm conclusion to draw. It's pretty clear that... With CCV and Richards not involved in this camp, Beralter want, wanted to give Long the reps alongside Zimmerman. We can debate yep. whether that was a successful experiment or a successful ploy. Um, I would suggest it wasn't all that successful. And so if CCV or Richards are, are fit by the time the World Cup comes around, maybe they start. I, um, I would suggest that would be a good idea. But nonetheless, Long is, in, is going to be on that roster, assuming that he's fit. Um, so I guess by default, because EPB... I heard that he maybe had an injury for this game, but nonetheless, EPB and McKenzie, I think it's quite clear, are below long in that depth chart. So by default, his stock is up. Mm-hmm. And we did have some people frustrated with our with our analysis of Long versus McKenzie on the last show. I can understand that, to be honest. I think where we're coming from is basically that 
in terms of Burhalter's depth chart, Long is ahead of McKinsey, and I think that there are justifiable reasons for that from past performances. And so we talked about this in the camp preview. It would have required Eric Palmer Brown or Mark McKenzie to come in and really show they have upped their game. They have, they have come to understand the system or function better within it. They can move the ball better. They can keep the, uh, keep possession. They're not going to make obvious mistakes. Uh, and if they don't do that, then Aaron Long stays ahead of them. It's not that Aaron Long had a great camp. I don't think he had a, a very good camp. No, not even, at all. But I think he had a better camp overall than any of the other options. It's a very low bar, but it's a bar nonetheless. Yeah, I yes, just sort of end up channeling. Right. I just end up channeling all my energy about the center back discussion into uh, healing power juju for Chris Richards. Yeah, because I mean, like, are we really going to yeah. waste a lot of time and energy thinking about Aaron Long versus Mark McKenzie? It, it doesn't. It's just not. There's not enough meat on the bone for that. There's enough meat on the Chris Richards bone, assuming he can get back and get healthy. He is a guy who could yeah. raise this team ceiling and raise their floor. But unless that happens, if it's Aaron Long or Eric Palmer Brown or Mark McKenzie. The U.S. is vulnerable in that spot one way or the other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I thought another player whose stock is maybe slightly up is Joe Scally. Um, one of yep. the, I know he only plays 30 minutes, but it's a low bar here when I'm trying to think of players whose stock is up. But I thought the, the cameo off the bench of Scally was, was decent, comes on, plays on the right side, not the left side. Of course, that's where he's been playing for Gladbach this season. But coming into the camp, we thought he would be in direct competition for the backup, um, left back spot with Sam Vines. Sergino Dest plays this full match at, at left back. So that's not really the case. That's what I think one of the conclusions we can draw is that Dest is seen as the backup left back, but I thought Scally did okay well, actually, when he came on. Yedlin also had a couple moments where he got forward well, but I thought defensively there were moments where he was also poor. I liked that Scally had a bit of bite to his performance, which had maybe been lacking in that second half as that second half petered out, and maybe that is conditioning my opinion of Scally a little bit and that that second half wasn't really very watchable or entertaining, so him coming on was was eye-catching, but I think, I don't know whether it's enough to get him on the World Cup roster, because we're only talking 30 minutes over two games, but I thought his stock is slightly up. Joe, I know you were, you were positive on Scally as well in the BR show. Uh, thoughts on him in general, and do you think he has done enough to, at the very least, uh, add his name to that list in the conversation that Berhalter talks about? <laughs> He's got to be in the conversation versus uh, he is in the conversation. Uh, wh- where would you put Scally? Maybe don't use that metric because that's too I, confusing. I'm going to be real. I yeah. think you're the only one who understands the distinction between those two, <laughs> those two things. Um, about He's got how Greg to be Brother in the conversation. It. He's got to get himself in the conversation means not involved. <laughs> he is in the conversation means he's involved but not on the plane. And I guess... We don't even need, even need to talk about him means he either is or isn't in the case of Jordan P. Fox. So yeah, it remains confusing, I guess, is the takeaway. Yeah, I am confused, certainly. Uh, <laughs> uh, that much I do know for sure. Joe Scalia, that was good. I echo what Graham said. I would love to see more of him. I wish we had seen more of him against Japan and probably more of him in this game. I would have much preferred him to start over DeAndre Edlin, even just to get him at right back and have Dest on the left. We did learn from this, and if we're talking takeaways... We learned a few different things about Brother's depth chart. We talked about Long and his spot in the depth chart. We also learned that Dest is probably the backup left back, right? I mean, we saw Sam Vines play there, and he didn't impress all that much. Brother goes with Dest in this game over Sam Vines to give him another run at. Well, we know that Brother was not afraid to start players in back-to-back games. Several players did that from Japan to Saudi Arabia. So Dest gets that look. It's not Scali at left back. It's not Vines at left back. 
I think that maybe tells us something about what we're going to see about the World Cup roster. There's a ton of different permutations and combinations that that we could see. But if we're talking depth chart only and not trying to divide that depth chart into a 26-player squad, it does sort of seem like yeah. Dest is number two on that list right now. And I have a problem with that, I have to be honest. I don't think in, in isolation Dest is terrible at left-back. He can play there. But I'm not so sure you can play Dest behind Pulisic on, on the left side because both players have that natural urgency to cut inside. So when when you have Pulisic on the left side and you have Robinson, Jedi Robinson, providing the width, that's fine because you maintain the width. You always have that option. Nothing gets too congested in the middle. If you have Dest as the left side fullback, in my opinion, to my eye, you need someone ahead of him to maintain the width. And I don't think Pulisic is that player because, he's, as I say, he has that natural tendency to cut inside. And I, I don't really see anyone else on the roster who is, who is that player. So that's my concern with playing Dest on the left. The, the, the World Cup is now the USMT's next game. And I feel like there are still questions about what happens to not just the, the profile of the back line, mm-hmm. but the profile of the midfield and then through to the attack when you have Dest as the left back because there's a knock-on effect of how he impacts that left side as a whole. So... And yeah. even there, where we've come to a conclusion, I feel like there's a question mark attached to it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I want to talk about that maybe in the final segment, because I think that relates to Greg Berhalter, our current thoughts, and what needs to happen between now and the World Cup for us to feel a bit more solid. Because I think this camp, what we talked about was that we hoped to have some definitive answers one way or the other coming out of it. And instead, I feel like I have more questions or more doubts about players and positions than I did previously. I look at the fullbacks for a moment, and I think in terms of fullbacks, like my confidence rating, Anthony Robinson is number one. Then there's a bit of a gap. Then there's Serginho Dest. Then there's a bit of a gap. And then right now it's Joe Scally because Reggie Cannon, again, another thing that seemed to annoy people, me talking about how I like Reggie Cannon. I like Reggie Cannon as a person. I like all of his interviews. I like everything I've seen from him in terms of locker room chemistry. And I do think we've seen him be good enough as that right center back, but certainly not against Japan. And, And I think if you're bringing him in to do that job, and he basically allows a goal to happen, in my opinion. I think that has to knock the rating down a little bit. And then Yedlin, I think, is there for chemistry. Joe and I talked about this in the show as well, that he's there, I think, to be the locker room guy. He has the World Cup experience. He can be a veteran leader. But in terms of on-field product, I'm not sure he is where he was. Or if anything, I'm confident he isn't what he used to be. So he's a different player, and I don't think he's going to bring you as much of a late-game impact as he might have otherwise. So I end up feeling like Joe Scally is the fullback that I have the third most confidence in right now. Joe, would you agree or disagree with that one? I agree, Taylor. <laughs> with, it's not where great... my confidence is, is, Joe. Would you agree or disagree? <laughs> I agree that your confidence is right there. And Taylor, yeah. I agree that my confidence is right there along with yours. We're hanging out All together. Right. It, it's just not a great spot to be. And it also, I would be surprised. Just picture this, right? It's Let's say it's the game against Iran, right? And it's the 75th minute and Sergio Desta started it right back and he needs a rest. Do any of us really think that Brawler is going to bring on Joe Scally over someone like DeAndre Yedlin or Reggie Cannon in that moment? As much as I would like to believe it, I don't, right? I just don't believe it. So as much as I am encouraged by Joe Scally's performance, as short as it was, and I think it was much improved over some of what we saw from him over the summer, I'm, I'm just not, I'm not ultimately encouraged because I don't think it actually moved the needle enough for Baralter to change his hierarchy. And, and to be fair, there is something to be said for experience, right? There is something to be said for having someone like Yedlin, who is a veteran, despite the fact that I don't think he's really ready to contribute or good enough to contribute meaningfully to the U.S. right now. 
I like Scally. I just wish it moved the needle for me more in, in like more of a macro big picture kind of sense. Uh, I, we've been talking about uh, the the positive players that Graham uh, had after this game. Joe, I think we did the same thing on our show. Uh, I think we had Turner, we had Long, we had Scally. Who else did we have? Did we have Tyler Yedlin, Adams? Yedlin on was the only other one in, in terms of okay. risers, just because the fact that we see him start at right back. Not that he played mm-hmm. well. Again, I wrote this for backfield. We talked about it. We'll talk about it now. I think I think Yedlin was poor. I thought he was like uh, observably bad in this game on, on pretty much both sides of the ball. The whole right side was out of sync. Reina helped, but when Reina went off and Paul Ariola went on. That side was just a black hole for the U.S., and, and they got almost nothing from it. But the fact that he starts in this game at right back, I think, tells us something. I'll be shocked if he's not at the World Cup as the only player likely to have experience going into that tournament. So, yeah, Yedlin was the one we had, not because I thought he played well in this game or in this camp, but because I think in Berhalter's estimation, we learned about, we, I should say this, we learned about where Yedlin is in the last game before the World Cup in Berhalter's mind, and I think it's going to be really hard to change that before Qatar. All right, let's take one more break. We'll come back to talk about some players whose stock is down or did not help their chances as well as maybe a longer conversation about Greg Berhalter. All that in just a second. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back. Segment number three. We stayed, I think, mostly happy energy so far. Graham, group A, looking good. Going to be fun. <laughs> Yeehaw. <laughs> hey, I appreciate the Americanism. Uh, but let's talk about some negative performances, both from this game and from the camp as a whole. I will start us by talking about Ricardo Pepe, a player that I think we all sort of agreed we understood why he was called back in, given Burhalter's uh, explanation, but 
actually kind of also were confused by at the same time. Like, we understood Berhalter's logic, but at the same time, the form hasn't been there. And I think after this game, I still have those same questions because it's, I think, 13 touches and 60 minutes for Ricardo Pepe. And a lot of that has to do with the way the United States did not build through the middle. They didn't get him the ball very much. Uh, and I don't think he was given many opportunities to shine. That said, Jesus Ferreira comes in in those final 30 minutes. He gets 10 touches, not a significantly better number, but still, uh, if you double that, 30 minutes to 60 minutes, which is how much Pepe played, then obviously that number goes up. But I also think Ferreira's movement was pretty notable in my mind, that we saw him dropping very deep, trying to facilitate play, trying to give you some of those midfield overloads centrally. And I think not that Jesus Ferreira had a particularly good game when he came on, but it's another one in which I think we just, we didn't see Ricardo Pepe do enough to continue to justify that selection. I still think there's a very good chance we see him at the World Cup, but Ricardo Pepe was a player that I thought we could have seen more of. My final thought on him, uh, I love this one from Greg Lalas. I guess Burhalter had that quote of, we're not... We're not asking him to come in and yeah. score five goals. I knew this We're asking good. him to come in and be a part of the system. And Greg Lawless, I think, said, maybe next time someone should ask him to score five goals and see what <laughs> happens. I would agree with that. Uh, so that's how I'm feeling about Ricardo Pepe. Graham, how are you feeling about him? Uh, I don't know with Ricardo Pepe because yep. there was just so little of him that it, it feels almost unfair to yes, agree. make a solid conclusion about him on the back of this game. But ma- he needed to make a, a good impression. And the fact of the matter is that he didn't. And this is maybe where it's slightly unfair, this this um, this contrast, this comparison I'm going to make. But not only did Jesus Ferreira, o- o- over the course of his cameo off the bench, just look a better fit for this US front line, but I think within about 30 seconds, he actually has uh, a pretty decent sight of goal um, where Saudi Arabia cough up the ball on the edge of their box. Mm-hmm. That's where it's slightly unfair. So maybe Pepe would have had that chance as, as well. But I saw someone on Twitter. I wish I, I wish I could remember who it was so I could credit it. But basically, they said that the, the comparison between Pepe is neither strikers score a lot of goals, but one striker at least has shots where the other striker just doesn't seem to have any shots. And so you kind of gravitate towards the guy who is at least giving you a chance of scoring a goal, and that's Jesus Ferreira. So... Before this camp, I wouldn't have had Pepe on my roster. I've been pretty, um, I've been pretty consistent in my belief that Pfalz should be involved in this in this roster, and I stand by that because I think he gives you a better, a different option, a plan B if things are not going as planned as yeah. was the case in both games here. And I just don't think Pepe does enough to shake things up. And, and you know, one of the biggest takeaways, I think, from this window, one of the biggest risers, at least optimistically, I'm thinking this, that we didn't touch on is Jordan Pifak. Because if there's one thing yep. that I feel confident in after this window, it's that the U.S. needs a plan B, right? We kind of saw with Greg Berhalter with his talk about, you know, wanting players both in, in pre-window press conferences and, and that quote about Pepe just needing to be a player in our system, to be like a striker in our system. Berhalter is kind of beating everyone over the head with this idea that his strikers have to fit this profile, and they already know what Jordan Pifak does, and the, the sort of underlying assumption there is that Jordan Pifak doesn't do this stuff that Berhalter wants. Well, if we learn one thing from this camp, it's that the strikers doing the stuff that Greg Berhalter wants aren't getting shots. I mentioned this number already, five touches in the box for Sergeant Pepe and Ferreira combined across 180-plus minutes of soccer in the September window. That's not enough, right? The U.S. crossed the ball, I believe, 21 times in this game. But they didn't create much of anything from those chances. They don't have a target in the box. They weren't getting numbers in the box. 
They need a plan B. And I don't think Jordan Pivak would be my choice to go out there and start against Wales. I don't know that he'd be my choice to start any of the games that the U.S. has coming up in the World Cup group stage. But having him as an option, man, it, it's just clearer now, I think, than it ever has been before to me. And I hope to Greg Berhalter about all of this that the U.S. needs something different. And Jordan Pivak is just about the best option they have to do that something different. Agree on the plan B option. I would also say, and credit to Jared Dubois for pointing this one out on Twitter, that if you're looking at the U.S. game plan, which was not really to possess and build through the middle, but to kind of, as we talked about, hit those long diagonals to play uh, players in behind and then look for crosses, (laughs) that feels like a spot where you would want a player who is kind of a poacher and a fox in the box, and that has been what Jordan Pifak has been for Union Berlin so far this season. There's a lot of things that I think would have worked there, which has me feeling, again, more questions, more confusion, because at this point, I honestly won't be surprised if we don't see Jordan Pifak in Qatar. But at the same time, I will be very confused and concerned that he isn't there. So I think we sort of can can feel like we know more about this team and simultaneously know less, and that is not a great feeling to have. Joe, I know we only have you for a, a limited amount of time. We may end up having to say goodbye to you prematurely, and then Graham and I will round it out. Uh, so I wanted to ask if there are any other individuals that you feel like are worth highlighting in a negative way. I don't know if that's low lighting. I don't know if that's like you're highlighting with a red highlighter instead. But either way, <laughs> who else should we be talking about? Yeah, Kellen Acosta, we already mentioned him. I thought he was bad. I think I saw a really great tweet. I want to see if I can find it quickly from Paul Harvey. Um, You know that quote about Sergio Busquets, about him... Uh, you know, if you watch the game, you don't see Sergio Busquets, but if you watch Sergio Busquets, you see the game, right? I don't remember who it was that said that, some Spanish coach. <laughs> Paul Harvey, who has written some for us at Backfield and, and does some really good analysis on Twitter, basically said, you know, you watch the game and you don't see Kellen Acosta, but you watch Kellen Acosta and you see a bad soccer player. And that, it's maybe a little bit harsh, but I, I, <laughs> I honestly laughed out loud when I read that tweet during this game because it felt right. He just wasn't impacting the game in meaningful ways for the U.S., or at least in positive ways for the U.S. So Acosta, I put on there. De La Torre as well. I wish we would have seen him today against Saudi Arabia, but he didn't play well against Japan. He was one of many who didn't, but it doesn't do a lot uh, to stake his claim in that midfield. I still think he is next in line in terms of the midfield depth chart after Yunus Musa. But man, I don't feel more confident about De La Torre being able to hang against really good teams today as I did a month ago. And I was hoping to feel more confident about that after the September window. All right, so that's some negatives from Joe. Graham, over to you for any players that you feel like maybe ruled themselves out of contention after these two games. So before this camp, I said one of the the uses would be to eliminate players from contention, not just players earning places in the Mm -hmm. team. I think two players that probably have eliminated themselves from contention are Cardoso and uh, Malik Tillman. Just neither of them did enough. I think Cardoso didn't really seem to understand what his role was. And Tillman, he needed to really have two impressive performances. And I I, I just didn't think he made a good enough impression. Yep. I also think one of, at least one of uh, EPB or McKenzie, maybe both if CCV and Richards are both fit, maybe one of them gets on the roster if one of those isn't fit. I still don't really know where Berhalter uh, stands on CCV. I keep making this assumption because I'm quite high on CCV mm-hmm. that he'll be on the roster, but maybe CCV isn't on the roster and, and Mackenzie and EPB get on there. But I think it's a good bet that one of them misses out. Yeah, I've got some concerns about who ends up making that roster and who ends up starting some of those games. I, I honestly have 
not concerns, but I guess frustration with Weston McKinney as well. He's a player who I have long been a huge fan of. I know there's been plenty of concern and criticism for him from various outlets. But in this game, I felt like this was another opportunity for him to be that leader, for him to be the person who doesn't back down, who kind of helps the U.S. find a way through. And it seemed like that was going to be the way it went. And instead, it kind of felt like another anonymous performance from him in the end, such that he gets subbed out. And I wouldn't mind. I guess we don't have any more friendlies. I wish we had maybe one more for him not to play, just as a reminder of there are other options there. And you're you're not locked down, guaranteed to start. You got to really prove it in these next couple months to make everybody feel like you are that player that we all know he can be. So Weston McKinney is one that I'm a little bit down on. Then again, that is par for the course when it comes to this team. And honestly, when it comes to Greg Berhalter, let's talk about the manager now with the time we have left. Uh, Joe, I, I I basically want to lay it out as I feel like this is the time in which Greg Berhalter sort of earns his money and maybe earns that next contract or doesn't earn that next contract. Because at this point, I think there are many issues. He was pretty coy about what his takeaways were going to be, what his clear takeaways were. He said we saw some things or learned some things when asked to elaborate on that one. I think he said some things and left it at that. So I'm guessing he doesn't want to rake people over the coals publicly. But I think between now and the start of the World Cup is when he needs to truly figure out who is going to be there and who can function within a simplified system. That is my hope, at least. Yeah, and I I feel some frustration about all this because isn't that what September was supposed to be for? Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, these were the dress rehearsals. I wrote that. We talked about it. These were the last two chances that Greg Berhalter had to iron things out before the World Cup. And now it feels like we're leaving these games with significantly more questions than we had coming into them. And And that, to me, feels like an issue. The U.S. is still yet to prove themselves against teams that are going to be at the World Cup. This stat was going around from Opta. The U.S. have one win in their last seven matches against teams going to the 2022 World Cup. They haven't scored in the other six. So that's 0-2 to two loss against Canada in World Cup qualifying. 0-0 to Mexico in World Cup qualifying. 0-2 loss to Costa Rica. 3-0 win against Morocco in, in June. A draw against Uruguay in June. A loss to Japan and a draw with Saudi Arabia. They, they have not been able to put the ball in the back of the net or get results consistently against teams that are going to the World Cup, Morocco being the one exception to that. And it was not a full-strength Morocco team, and they didn't play very well in that game either. So yeah, I'm concerned. I I don't think Greg Berhalter has done a good job in this window managing the team. They don't look prepared in games. They struggled against both of the the different defensive tests that were thrown at them, the high press and the low block. They should have been ready for both of those things to at least do more than we've seen. And the problem of, of the attack still stands. So the one area that I do feel encouraged about this team heading into the World Cup is their defending, right? The U.S. didn't give up many chances to Japan. I know they lose 2-0, but the last goal basically comes and the game's already done and all the changes have been made. And they don't give up hardly anything to Saudi Arabia, right? Saudi Arabia maybe had a little bit of the better chances than the U.S., but I mean, there was almost nothing for them in this game. There was almost nothing for them in this game. So I don't think I have a ton of concerns about the U.S. defensively, but they still have not cracked the code against good teams of how to create chances. They haven't cracked the code against teams like Saudi Arabia either, who will be at the World Cup, but are not nearly at the level of a lot of the other teams I read off in that list. I don't even think they're at the level of a Costa Rica, certainly not of a Canada at the moment right now when you watch these teams. So I have real concerns about what Berhalter is trying to do. It's hard to break down a low block in soccer. It's hard to break down a compact defense. The U.S. had that today. But again, I I come back to this idea that it's been almost four years since Berhalter stated his goal tactically, his tactical philosophy, philosophy, excuse me, about this team about wanting to disorganize the opponent with possession. 
and they had a chance to do it today in the last game before the World Cup when they're going to have to do it more at the World Cup against teams like Wales, maybe even against mm-hmm. England and Iran. And they looked completely, I don't want to say yeah. completely, they looked very much incapable of doing that for any consistent passages of play in this game. And that, for me, is, is a really big problem and says a lot about this team right now under Greg Berhalter. Yeah. And, and it's not just this window either. I think this window has been a nightmare window. This feels like a real low and the US have generally been better than they've showed in this window. But the Baralter wants to play the US to play, it wants the US to play this, uh, possession game. But how many times have they truly played the way that he wants? I think it's kind of like a, a handful of time. Uh, and it, and it feels like everything needs to be, perfect for the US to play the, the way they want to and when one component doesn't work or isn't there like Yunus Musa in this camp the whole thing falls down and here here's the most concerning thing and this is where I've always had criticism of Beralter, even when things have been going well that there isn't the pragmatism to make it through those mm-hmm. difficult moments I don't see a team ah. I referenced this earlier I don't see a team that can think for itself and not necessarily and that's not necessarily a criticism of the players but I, I see a team that is so wedded to a style of play that they are incapable or, or unprepared to work out problems and the system it just feels like the players are being weighed down by the system and sometimes I Taylor, I think you referenced it there with a simplified system. Maybe you get more out of this team. And that's the way I feel after these two games is simplify things. Sometimes less is more. And the part of the reason these frustrations are so, these performances are so frustrating, sorry, is that this is a team with good players. Um, and on talent, when everyone is fit and in form, this is a team that can make a run at the World Cup. But as things are right now, I'm, I am not confident that that is going to happen, I have to say. And, and I and think Graham, that's where you have a decision as, as a manager where, yes, he has that long-term view, but maybe sometimes you need to make the short-term compromises to be able to deliver the long-term, and, and I'm not convinced Barathe's going to do that. Well, and, and I don't disagree with the, the conclusion you've drawn there, Graham, but I do kind of disagree with the premise. The weird thing for me about this window, one of the weirdest things, is we've seen Barathe go pragmatic before. We, he's done it, like, you know, ha- maybe not half a dozen times, four or five times in big games to the U.S., I think back to last summer, the Nations League final, the U.S. played against the ball in that game, the same in the Gold Cup final, the same in World Cup qualifying games against Mexico, at least in large stretches of them. They were willing to sacrifice that idea of, oh, we want to use the ball to, to create chances. They didn't do that stuff. Yeah, I guess you you always have to use the ball to create chances, but they were doing it on the break, not in possession. And so that was what was so baffling to me about the game against Japan is this this team's coming at you and they want to play. And instead of actually giving them the ball and being a little bit more pragmatic in that game, especially after you could tell things weren't working 30 minutes or so into that game, the U.S. just kept beating their heads against the wall. And that, to me, was very much unlike what we've seen Greg Berhalter do in in recent big games. And and sort of the same goes today against Saudi Arabia. The U.S. just end up beating their heads against the wall. They can't solve the problem. That, for me, goes against so much of what we've seen Greg Berhalter go to. He's been more pragmatic. He's been more willing to change up what he wants to do to benefit the player pool. And yet we come back here with no games left before the World Cup, no minutes Mm -hmm. left to be played. And it kind of feels like we're way back where we were all the way back in 2019, where there's questions. Are they going to be pragmatic? Are they not? How married, how wedded to this style are they? How how much are they willing to go down with the ship? And I I thought we'd sort of move past those questions. But now it's very clear to me that, that we haven't. 
Yeah, no, I think that's entirely fair. Maybe I worded that poorly. And I've got that in my notes as back to square one. So we did yeah. see the evolution of the group where Berhalter found sol- mm-hmm. solutions in key positions, whether that was Robinson at left back or the MMA midfield or way on the right side, Jesus Ferreira in the nine. It felt like there was a process there where he was figuring things out. At the start, he was very idealistic. He wants he wanted everything to be built out from the back. And then all of a sudden, he's bringing in guys like Zimmerman, who actually I think has improved on the ball, but he is generally there to be, um, not to reduce his qualities in any way, but to be a defensive lump. I kind of mean that as an, 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 <laughs> as a compliment. He is there almost as a compromise, but that's why this window feels so confusing because this window should be the culmination of all that where you're no longer a work in progress. You are somewhere close to a finished product with the World Cup just around the corner. And all of a sudden, the centre-backs are being asked to to build everything from the back, whether that's progressing through the midfield like the Japanese game or they did go slightly more pragmatic in this game with Zimmerman plays those diagonal balls. But nonetheless, that's him being asked to build things, build attacks from from the central defensive unit. And the intensity isn't there and the possession play is sloppy. And so there are all these questions. We've got a few conclusions about players that are probably not going to the World Cup, but we have so many more questions after this window. We do. We have a little bit more to talk about. Uh, But Joe, I know you got to hit the road. Hopefully you are going to do something fun, something enjoyable, something that isn't uh, (laughs) having to talk more about the United States. So Joe Lowry, thank you so much for joining us for this recap and for the live show. I very much enjoy getting to chat these things out with you and figure some things out, even if we still have a lot of looming questions. Yeah, right back at you, Taylor. Right back at you, Graham. I'm going to go eat uh, a full box of Hot Pockets. A hard yeah, one. Yeah, and have a drink. Drinking <laughs> Hot Pockets. That's where I'm going. All right. See you, fellas. <laughs> see you, Joe. Uh, Graham, I don't I don't think we need to go too, too much longer, but no. I, I want to stick with uh, Burhalter for a moment because a thing that we talked about previously uh, in the live show, I keep referencing that, but I always feel like if people have listened, they just assume I'm making the same points over and over again. Uh, <laughs> Felipe Cardenas uh, mentioned that Tata Martino, uh, uh, the manager of Mexico, Mm-hmm. Uh, gave the U.S. the ball at the Azteca to avoid getting burned in transition and to force uh, Greg Berhalter's center backs to pass. That full-strength U.S. side handled that tactic well, and the implication from Felipe being that, of course, this team did not. I would definitely agree that they did not. Do you see that concern there that against uh, maybe more bunkered opponents, we're going to see Aaron Long giving the ball away and U.S. center backs sort of being dispossessed? It doesn't feel like this is a team that knows how to figure out attacking play. And it yeah. also, I think, speaks to that long-running concern that Greg Berhalter himself is not a, a very effective attacking manager. Sure. And I think that's why this window has been such a nightmare. I actually mm-hmm. think US soccer did a decent job of picking the two opponents for these friendly matches because they are two teams that are going to the World Cup, so they're not going to win the World Cup, but nonetheless, they're they're not no-hopers. There is a certain level from both teams, but they play in very different ways. So Japan were the, the team that was pressing high on the US, um, high intensity, proactive, and then the idea there is, is for the US to try and create moments of quick transition against Japan. And they didn't they didn't do that. And that kind of put a skewer through this theory that a lot of people, including myself, maybe had that the US would perform better against higher caliber opponents who would take the game to them and there would be space in behind and they'd be able to play through them. That didn't happen against Japan. Then you have the flip side of that against Saudi Arabia, where you do have a more compact team trying, uh, as Joe talked about, they had a kind of 20 to 30 yard congested part of the pitch. um, And the US went a little bit more direct, but it never really felt like 
they were going to score a goal that way either. So you have a, a slightly lower defensive block and th- that game was a bit of a nightmare as well. And that has always been a concern against this team going through qualifying. You know, the road games away from home were not ideal. Then you have the, the teams that sit deep and ask the US to, to break them down. Those games weren't ideal either. And so then you have so many different ideological questions about the US heading into this World Cup about what what is this team? Like, what what is the identity of this team? There's been so much talk about identity and taking an overarching view of what US soccer wants to be in the future. Baralter makes that mission statement right at the beginning when he comes into this job. And I just don't know how close he is to delivering that. And that's where that's why I talk about the pragmatism now to make short-term adjustments so that he can look after the long-term, I'm not convinced that he's he's going to do that. That's, that's where I, d- I disagree with Joe a little bit. I understand what he's saying because there has been that evolution of the group. But you look at Jordan Peefock being left out of this roster. That, to me, is not a compromise. That is not him, Baralter being pragmatic. That's him being idealistic about things. And I, I have more concerns now about this World Cup than I did before this camp, which is not what you want. You want to be coming out your final camp before the World Mm. Cup thinking, we got this. We're going to go into this tournament. This young group of players is going to blow everyone away. We're going to make a run into the the latter rounds. And uh, that confidence has been washed away from me as an outsider. Yeah, I I would agree with that. And I think the same is true for me. So I think where I end up is that like, I, I do feel like I have some firm ideas about this team and the direction they're heading I just think they're not ideal they're not great and and I think a lot of that relates to Greg Berhalter and and so instead of it being like okay we know now who this guy is we know who this starter is going to be we know who the backup is going to be here I have that same concern about that idealism I have that same concern that even if we do have Richards and CCV healthy that it's going to be Aaron Long starting I have that same concern that even if it's Matt Turner gets a few more games and kind of does Matt Turner things that if Zach Steffen comes back it will be Zach Steffen starting and I think if we see that then we sort of know that ultimately it's the guys that Burhalter thinks understand the system best or thinks are most coachable and fit his style the most those are the ones he wants to play but that means he is dying by those decisions and living by them as well. But if it is Aaron Long starting and he gives the ball away and Gareth Bale comes right back down and slams into the goal, that is a mistake that we've seen Aaron Long make before. And if you ask him to do it again, you are repeating those same mistakes. If Zach Steffen makes a howler or gives the ball away, we've seen him do that before. And so I think... If this is an opportunity, I guess, for me, where he can have that final evolution, he can make some of those tough decisions that he maybe hasn't had to make yet or feels like he's been leaning towards but now has to really close the door. And if that Mm. is not including Jordan Peefock, then that's a decision he makes. But if it's nil-nil against Iran and we need there to be a difference maker and we don't have Jordan Peefock and we're throwing in Walker Zimmerman to be that number nine and that big target forward – Questions will be asked. And again, it goes back to me of this is the kind of final period he has to get everybody on the same page to feel like he has a collective unit. Because if he doesn't and the World Cup doesn't go well, I don't see how U.S. soccer renews. Maybe that's not even a thing he wants. And maybe that's not a thing that should happen. But I I feel like a couple months ago, I was very firmly in the camp of no, Burhalter has figured this team out. They're moving in the right direction. He's made tough decisions. He's ironed out some of the details. And now it's it's just fine tuning. And at this point, I think there's still plenty of fine tuning. But I think there's also some big, big picture questions 
ones as well. And so we have some answers. We There are a lot more that we don't, and we will soon, one way or the other. I just kind of wish it were a more positive feeling about yeah. the situation overall. Yeah, and I think that negativity, one of the one of the biggest concerns I have about this window, there's lots of tactical discussions and talk about the system, but I've never really had concerns about the group itself and the environment in the team. I have now lingering concerns Mm -hmm. coming away from this camp. Um, Berhalter said after this game, the Saudi Arabia game, that the players were nervous because it was their last chance to make the roster before the World Cup. How are those nerves Mm -hmm. going to be on November 21st at at an actual World Cup against Wales or against England at a World Cup? And it's been spoken about a lot that this is a young group And I think that's generally a good thing for the US to build up this group together. Obviously, there's a long-term plan for 2026. Um, and And it could be the case that the US goes to this World Cup and they have a lack of tournament experience and that is the thing that costs them. And that that would be natural and maybe unavoidable when you have a, a young team like this. But one of the benefits of having a young group should be that they're fearful and they play with verve and youthful exuberance. Where is any of that at the moment? right now i mean mm-hmm. i see plenty of fear in the way that the us is, is, is playing but seems to be referencing that and admitting it and ultimately it that is down to the manager yes there's there is personal responsibility there but it's up to the manager to create a structure and a game plan and an environment that the players are comfortable with and these two games were uncomfortable were uncomfortable that this painted a picture of a team and a group that is not comfortable, whether that's a, a tactical thing or something down to the environment of the, mm-hmm. the, of the, of the dressing room. I, I don't know. I'm not in that dressing room, but that is the words that I would sum up how the US played these two games uncomfortable. And, and, and I wonder if some of that comes from, um, I'm speculating a little bit here, but I, I wonder if some of that comes from the discourse around the US MNT. And I say this as an outsider. I have never experienced a national team that is so forensically analyzed. And is the number one talking point at any given time, like the USMNT. And some of that is down to the the club landscape in the US. And obviously, the US fans are excited about going to a World Cup. I, I get that. It's it's a talking point. But it, it is kind it feels inescapable a lot of the time, the discourse. And this sounds like I'm kind of blaming fans for the way the US is playing at the moment. And obviously, that's not it. But if fear is a problem, that is a broader discussion than just putting your chest out and putting on a brave face and telling these young guys to play like men that 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 doesn't help you need mm-hmm. to kind of delve deeper into what that issue is and you need to look at what is causing that fear and that has to be in my opinion on Baralter's to-do list ahead of this world cup because they can't play with that that fear when the tournament starts you, they cannot and uh, you can't sack the whole locker room obviously at this point that's where i think the questions about Burhalter start to get louder but graham you made a reference to welcome to rexham earlier i'm going to do the same now uh mild spoilers for the second episode of that show but like it's a weird vibe around the takeover not just because it's a takeover uh for folks who haven't seen it but because like the manager and some of the players seem really unenthusiastic about it and not like oh these americans don't know what they're doing they just seem really muted and you slowly realize over the course of that episode that it's because they think, I am not good enough for the level that they aspire to. I am going to be sacked or sold. 
And there isn't that fight that you want to see from those players. And I think that is probably why, in the end, a lot of them do end up getting sacked after that second episode. Again, spoilers. Uh, but uh, I'm done spoiling it now. People can come back in. <laughs> but I think what what to what I think this connects to in my mind with what you were saying is that you can have players who sort of shy away from that challenge or let the anxiety of the nerves overtake them, or you can have the players who respond to it with, I'm going to go out there and prove, no, nah, this is my team. I deserve to be here. I should be starting every single game. And I think you can have that swagger. You can even have that chest out and that confidence. But at the same time, if you miscontrol the pass and that confidence completely deflates, you're almost worse. It's almost more detrimental. And so I agree with you ultimately that this is what Burhalter has to sort of, I think, focus on is how to pick this team up and not just point fingers. And I think to his credit, he hasn't come out and said, this guy was bad, this guy was bad. Yeah, he's out of contention. Very unlikely that any manager is ever going to do that. But I think this is where he has to put an arm around the shoulder of a lot of these guys who are either still teenagers or just done being teenagers and help pick them back up and be a a sort of father figure uh, in terms of leading this team forward. And that is my hope, that he's basically able to remind them, you're representing your country, you all are good enough, you've played in even bigger games. Maybe not the World Cup, but a lot of them have played in the Champions League. A lot of them have played against world-class opposition. This is their opportunity to remember that. Maybe you take off a few of the instructions, you loosen things up a little bit more, and then you see what happens. And that would be my hope, that it's a team that rediscovers that confidence that needed this sort of wake-up call. I I think that's a very optimistic way of seeing things because right now it isn't really how I feel. I feel more like this is a team that is sort of – a little bit shocked, a little bit staggering, and there for the potential knockdown if things are not figured out. And that knockdown to me looks like a very poor World Cup and uh, a lot of work to be done in advance of the next one. Uh, but I hope that's not the case. I hope that this is a team that figures it out and we see some of that collective spirit and that collective fight back. I think they have the personality. I think they have the ability. Now we'll just see if they can make it happen between this time and the start of the World Cup. Graham, that is my sort of overall take on things any other things to add on that or anything else just that there is still time for this Mm -hmm. to turn around it's just unfortunate that Baralter's not going to have an opportunity to road test anything Mm -hmm. before the world cup maybe it all comes together on the day i don't think the environment of these two friendlies obviously it's the same for the two teams i understand that but i think playing those games in europe and those soulless arenas with mm-hmm. no fans and in Dusseldorf on that poor pitch I praised US Soccer for picking the two opponents in terms of the location I feel like that didn't help for a team that maybe needs that atmosphere to feed yeah, off man. in terms of their That's intensity and things like that so maybe by the time you get to the opening game of the World Cup for the US on November 21st against Wales that kind of sorts itself out and that intensity is just naturally there so there is still time for Berlter to find answers and for the US to have a good World Cup but let's not gloss things over this is not a good way to be going into that tournament and it feels already like there is a lot on the line for this team and most notably this team this team is going to be the core team for 2026 so in a mm-hmm. sense they've got less to lose for, but for Berhalter it feels like he's all of a sudden got quite a lot to lose where if the US lose all three games crash out of that tournament it's difficult to see him continuing it kind of feels like we're already at that point and you don't really want to be at that point going into a tournament that's not ideal it is not but maybe it sets the stage for a a massive turnaround and look where they were versus look where they ended up 
Maybe. Uh, but a less, uh, like, I don't know, pie in the sky dreaming uh, takeaway, my final takeaway for this one, uh, in regards to the crowd and the atmosphere, Graham, I think that is a very, very good point. It does not make this result different if it's a packed stadium necessarily. It doesn't make everything better. But I think about when Joe Scali comes in and he has a moment uh, after a couple minutes he's been on the pitch when – uh, he, I think, works really hard to win the ball back. Then he takes somebody on, and I think he ends up getting a cross in that maybe is knocked out for a corner. I forget the exact sequence. But what I remember was that it picked the crowd up, the limited crowd that was there. There was a big roar, or a relatively big roar, for that moment. And there was an appreciation of the fight and that spirit. And I do think with younger guys who were, a lot of times are playing on momentum and confidence, having the support of a, of a fan base, having the vocal support of a fan base can be that difference maker. Mm-hmm. And American crowds love that effort, love that intensity, and I think will respond to it. And so in some ways, maybe having that, that 12th supporter or that, 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 uh, that extra little bit maybe can make that difference. So there is yeah. that positive thing. Maybe a full stadium, maybe that intensity of the atmosphere, maybe that helps make that difference. Uh, yeah. We shall see, my friend. Yeah, and we've got a little bit of evidence of that, right? With yeah. the, the game in Orlando that you were at. You were at that yeah. game, right? Mm-hmm. The Panama was... game where yeah. the US blow Panama away. That's the Pulisic hat-trick game, right? Mm-hmm. And it kind of felt like the US fed off that atmosphere. And yeah. then you look on at some of the road games that the US played in CONCACAF qualifying where... The atmosphere, okay, you do have a, a few hostile atmospheres there, but you also have some kind of empty stadiums that they're playing in there, and then they tended to be the poorer performances. So I do think there is something in that, and hopefully by the time they get to Qatar. Having said that, the accommodation mm. situation in yeah. Qatar maybe means that this was the perfect preparation for the US going into hmm. that tournament, and there will be empty stadiums in Qatar. All right, so all we need to do is find a way to get a bunch of Americans to every single U.S. game. We need Greg Berhalter to maybe streamline the attacking game plan at, at the very least to get the best out of the players. We need every player to stay fit or to recover fitness, and then we need everybody to get some confidence. That's all we need, Graham, and then uh, the yeah. World Cup is ours. Easy. Easy enough. Well, uh, what will be fun, regardless of how the U.S. plays, is that we're going to be doing live shows, or at least one live show, maybe more if we keep selling some tickets. Uh, We will be in New York for the the opening uh, group stage games, or maybe for all the group stage games, Graham. I forget if we're there for all three. Uh, I think we're there for all three American group stage games, but we leave before the group stage is over in its entirety. All right. Well, links to that live show will be in the show notes if people want to buy tickets. Please come join us. It's going to be a very good time. And I'm just really excited to to be together with the three of you. Even if the U.S. crashes out, it will still be a memorable tournament because the four of us will be together doing some live stuff, recording in person. It's going to be a good time, Graham. Yeah, and at least we can laugh at Ryan. There's that. Oh, well, there's that. There's that. Okay, that makes me feel better. Uh, hopefully Ryan is not laughing at us for liking the United States. We shall see. And if he does, we'll just throw him <laughs> into the into the river or something like that. Nothing like ending a podcast on a threat of violence. Graham Ruffin, <laughs> thank you for being here and for keeping things as positive as they can be on this episode. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Joe Lowry, thank you as well. Even though you're already gone, listeners, thank you for sticking with us. We'll talk to you again many more times this week. For now, have a good night. On to better things next time.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.